context for this week's pass passage is um, we've just done a series in the uh, la last few weeks or months rather called the the Apostles Creed and we we did a series on the Apostles Creed because we found it uh, extremely helpful to cover in explicit detail the things which we're saying when we're saying the Apostles Creed. Uh, and by that, I mean, when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we are not literally just saying, as we saw in that series, that I believe the Holy Spirit exists, but we're also affirming and our belief and we're praising the Holy Spirit for all that he has done throughout all of the years of God's interaction and expansion of covenants with man. And so we, we see when in that series, we saw how in the when we say the Apostles' Creed, we're not literally just saying, I believe that there's one holy universal church. We also are saying, and we want to be a part of it, and we want to build it up and strengthen it. Those are the things that we're saying when we say the Apostles' Creed with faith. So the Apostles' Creed we saw contains what what I've been referring to as the apostolic foundation or or the uh, essential Christology of the apostles, that is what they believed about Jesus Christ, how he was both Lord, that means God, and Christ, the anointed king who would reign on the throne of David, and uh, that Jesus had fulfilled both of these roles, which in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets had always considered them to be two separate distinct things, both the idea of God living amongst his people as the idea of Emmanuel, that is God coming and being with his people. And we saw how we need as, as beings who are made in the image of God, we need God to come near to us. And then we also saw how Christ himself was uh, both the incarnate Emmanuel and the propitiation and sacrifice that s satisfied the wrath of God. And so the Apostles' Creed series was done so that we would actually have something to preach. That is, <clears throat> over the next few months, we're going to be beginning evangelistic campaigns. A few of them are with children, a few of them are with young adults. And before you understand the core elements of the Christian faith, as a disciple, being able to articulate that, before, you, before you've got that, you don't have anything to give away. So it's important that we focus on the quality of of the work that we're doing in these next few months. That's why we did the Apostles' Creed. It's a wonderful foundational uh, element of our faith, and it teaches us many great things. After the Apostles' Creed, if you remember, we celebrated the Ascension, that is, after Christ raised from the dead, he uh, spent 40, a period of 40 days with his disciples and apostles and appeared to many of them, and then finally was taken up to heaven, and he told them, to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. When Christ is ascended, he is then glorified. You see, you see Jesus in a glorified body in, in the book of Revelation in chapter one. That's a already taken place chapter in the book of Revelation. You see Jesus as the glorified king over all the universe. And we don't have time to get into it, but Jesus is the, the heavenly man in Revelation one, which is contrasted to the earthly man in the in the book of Daniel. But Anyway, when Jesus is glorified, he's anointed by his Father with the Holy Spirit, and that anointing trickles down, and we have the day of Pentecost. 
the Holy Spirit falls on the city of Jerusalem, and then it begins to take place all of the things that Jesus had spoken beforehand. And that's what we're doing in today's message. We are attempting to see how in the context of Acts 8, this is the fulfillment of what Jesus had been sent to do and to establish and to, and to sort of, if you will, kick the snowball down the mountain so that it would continue to roll and build momentum and, and speed. And so uh, last week, we actually looked at Stephen's life and how Stephen was a faithful young man who served God by serving the church, and that after he had been uh, prayed for by the apostles, he began to do the same works that the apostles did. We saw how he healed a a man with uh, uh, broken legs or weak legs, and that man was able to walk. And then Stephen begins to make an apologetic or a defense for the gospel before the Jewish leaders who were taking exception with what he was saying. And we saw how uh, both in light of the the foundations we learned in the Apostles' Creed and what we saw in Peter's defense at the day of Pentecost, that the apostolic gospel has a number of elements. One of them we looked at is a history-informed gospel. That is, we don't just start with Jesus died for your sins without covering God created the world and man fell and rebelled against him. And then after that, uh, God made a covenant with Abraham and then a covenant with Israel and a covenant, etc., etc. Peter, Stephen, even Philip have a history-informed gospel. So we also saw, so it's got a history-informed gospel or history, not, it's not ignorant of what God has done throughout the narrative of the Old Testament. And when you present a gospel that doesn't have any sort of context, when you, when you explain that Jesus died as a propitiation for their sins, they will have no root to understand what that means. And there are multiple ways to go about preaching a history-informed gospel. You can take it through Israel, or you can do what Paul does with the Greeks often and make naturalistic arguments and things like that. But it needs to be a gospel that is informed with history and with creation. We saw also how the apostolic gospel has in, inside it, it is included a, a warning of judgment. Both Peter warned the, the men in Jerusalem that if they would repent, times of refreshing would come instead of the judgment that was coming. Same thing with Stephen. He warned them that Jesus was going to remove the the lampstand, or, or that is, he was going to take away the kingdom from uh, Israel and give it to a nation or a people group who would produce the fruit of it. Because the Israelites at that time, their religious leaders and the people themselves had rebelled against God, and they their hearts were far from him, yet they honored him with their lips. And so, Stephen included that warning of judgment. We too, without preaching a gospel that includes a warning of judgment, provide no impetus or reason for people to give heed to our words. If you just come up to someone and say, Jesus died for your sins, would you like to accept Jesus? You put the onus on them. It sounds like they're doing a favor. Jesus is going to be more accepted after the fact. But if you tell them there is only one name under heaven by which men must be saved or else they will perish, you provide them with light. Otherwise, you are not providing them with light. You are simply providing facts. But if they are an unbeliever, if they, they don't have their words open to hear what God is trying to say to them, then if you don't, if you don't pierce their eyes with light, they'll stay blind. That's what takes place in the next few chapters with Saul. Saul originally could see in the natural, but he was blinded in the spirit. And then he sees Christ, 
Now he's blind in the natural, but can see in the spirit. It, it's, it's the way in which you have to preach the gospel. You have to demonstrate Christ as the risen, that is triumphant over death, resurrected, ascended king by whom all men must be saved. Without presenting that entire package, you're not giving them anything to help them. So we've got a history-informed gospel, a gospel that includes a warning of judgment, and then what I had just mentioned, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There is not, we, we don't put coexist bumper stickers. Who's, who's seen the coexist bumper sticker? If you ever see the coexist bumper sticker, you need to begin to uh, pray for that person who drives that car, maybe write their license plate down uh, and pray for them. The reason is, is all of those religions make exclusive claims. The, the, the cross there is right next to Judaism and Islam. And uh, I think there's the, the uh, Buddhist symbol and the Hindu symbol. Uh, I forget what those symbols are named, but you've got those religions and their symbols represented on that bumper sticker. And it's a bumper sticker about why can't we all just get along and stop the fighting? Well, Islam's stated goal at least in the true, authentic, what you might call fundamentalist or radical Islam, the stated goal is to submit all the world to Allah. And until that uh, takes place, uh, there cannot be peace on the earth and, and God will not come. There won't be, there won't be the uh, next age, if you will, until all the world submits to Allah. And, and Christianity, in the same way, talks about Christ as the only avenue of salvation, etc., etc., so, these religions cannot simply coexist. Each of them has absolute claims. That's one of the things you'll begin to have to look for when you're sharing the gospel in these next few months is people believe in a worldview, and every single worldview, whether, it's, whether it acknowledges this fact or not, is a totalizing worldview. If you think about the uh, political correctness and liberality of our day, what you might call secular progressivism, they talk about a religion, uh, the core tenet of their religion is what they call tolerance. But their tolerance is a very interesting idea. It basically says all ideas are equally valid. Well, how can you be tolerant with the idea of intolerance, that, that I... Uh, believe that the Bible says that Christ is the only answer. Are you going to tolerate my intolerance? It's, it's, uh, it's an impossibility, yet their worldview, the secular progressive worldview, totally believes that you have to accept everyone's worldview as possibly equally valid, which is impossible. So, those three things we saw were part of the apostolic preaching or the apostolic gospel that accompanied apostolic power. One of my main points in the last few weeks was we be, we uh, typically mourn the fact that we don't have apostolic power. That is, uh, it, it's very few and far between that we pray for someone who's sick or has a broken limb and it instantly recovers. That's That's rare these days, but I think that's because of and corollary to the fact that we also don't have apostolic preaching. Apostolic preaching and apostolic power go hand in hand. So, in the light of all of that, we saw how Stephen had died and, and even in his death was faithful to Christ. So, today we see how these deacons, these disciples that were with the apostles now, now that Stephen has died, Saul, Saul was there and approved, and now he begins to persecute the church. 
And so the, the church is sent out, and this is where we pick up the story today. So in today's message, we're, we're going to talk about four main elements of this narrative. First is the Great Commission. This is the uh, preamble to this uh, passage of Scripture. We're going to look at Philip's actions in Samaria, what he did when he went down. We're going to look at what it means to labor with God. That is, when we go and share the gospel, we're actually working with God. And when we, when we serve people in the church, we're, we're serving them in such a way that God is acting with us. We're going to look, finally, at where the end of the Great Commission is, or, or the ultimate goal of the Great Commission is, is to have the gospel go to the end of the earth. So, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, <clears throat> it says, And Jesus came and said to them, this is a very, very uh, popular verse, you've probably heard it many times, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, what authority does the enemy have? None. All authority has been given to Christ. Okay? All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, for this reason, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus tells his disciples to go and make more disciples. And there is a very explicit portion of, of the, the language of this verse that tells us how we make disciples. Um, disciples are made through these two things, baptism, that is water baptism, and the instruction of the, of the observation of the faith. That is, how does one observe the faith or how does one practice Christianity? What, is the, what are the things that God commands for Christians to do? Um, it's actually the case that the word uh, baptizing and teaching modify the verb make. He says, if you look at it closely, it says, making disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then this is, this is what modifies making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and teaching them to observe. So that's the twofold way in which disciples are made. And so, this is what the church begins to do in the book of Acts. Now, Jesus expresses this pattern for for how all believers are to come into the church, and then goes on later. You can think of this really as the other side of the Great Commission in Acts 1, verses 4 through 5 and verse 8. And while staying with them, he, being Jesus, ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus instructs his disciples to wait until the Holy Spirit comes, and then he provides the basis for the doctrine of baptism. That is, Christian baptism is a, it's a single baptism, but it really has kind of two baptisms in it. You can think of it as heads and tails. It's one coin of baptism. The first is the baptism of water for the remission of sins and the outward sign of inward repentance of the believer. That is, someone gets baptized in order to demonstrate they wish to follow the commands of Christ. And in baptism, they're uh, united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. 
And so baptism is the outward sign of the inward reality of repentance and conversion, that is turning to faith in Christ, you know, removing your sins and, and turning to God. And then the other part of the baptism is the baptism in the Holy Spirit in which a believer is endued with power, that is, power is deposited by God, that is, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, you're baptized in the Spirit, you're, you're submerged, you're surrounded by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, and through that baptism, you become his witnesses. So it's not just turning from sin, it's also beginning to share the gospel. That is conversion, biblically. It is not just you get baptized and then you go to Bible study for like five years and then eventually you maybe think about learning about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The goal of every Christian is to be baptized into the life of God. When Jesus says baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, he's not so much giving a formula so so much as saying, I want you disciples to take these new people from the nations and surround them in the ways and the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Bring them into the life of the Trinity, which is manifested in the community of believers, being filled with the Holy Spirit, repentant always, reforming always, yet the life of God being manifested in a group of people. And so he's not just saying you need to dunk them three times or you need to say this while you dunk them one time. Jesus isn't so much concerned with that as he is talking about how in, how a disciple is made. They're brought into the life of God. They're baptized in the name of God. So these are definite and specific experiences, which are separate, but are part of the same baptism. And this is clear both in the pattern of the, the apostles or Jesus' disciples, and it's also the pattern of this chapter. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit would come on the apostles in just a few days after Jesus had just told them to wait. So they wait. There's about 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, uh, that 50 days from the, the resurrection. Uh, on that day, the Holy Spirit comes and it begins to come to pass what Jesus had promised in what we saw as the second part of the Great Commission, Acts 1, 4 through 5, verse 8. You will be my witnesses. And notice the progression in geography. First in Jerusalem, okay, Jerusalem's the center city which they were already in, and then Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria are regions in Israel that surround Jerusalem, okay? If you remember, you know, Judah versus Israel from the Old Covenant, Judah's in the north. You've got Judea and Samaria. And so these two regions where uh, both the the people of Israel and Samaritans, that is non-Hebrews or half-Hebrews, these people are living there. And then finally, the, the next progression outward, you can think of it kind of like a, a concentric circle or a beacon on a radar map. Uh, first, you're going to work in Jerusalem, then you're going to go around, and then you're going to go out to the ends of the earth. And so this is what begins to happen in this book or in this chapter, in Acts 8. <clears throat> in Acts 8, it begins, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. If you think that's coincidental, it's not. That's clear, explicit, biblical language to describe 
the book of Acts is the fulfillment of the great prophet Jesus in saying, you're going to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem. And then with the death of Stephen, then comes Judea and Samaria. And then after that, the ends of the earth. It says, skipping to verse four, skipping verse two and three. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So this uh, persecution, it comes and it comes as sort of a catalyst on the movement that they were going, uh, going through. And so just as Stephen did not back down from the word of God when he was being persecuted, so also these faithful Christians uh, continued to preach the word. You'd think if they just got expelled from the great holy city, they might, you know, some of them might be doubting. Uh, maybe, hey, it looks like Israel really doesn't want to receive this message about Jesus. Are we sure we're getting it right? You know, some of them maybe have have been tempted to to say, what if we don't preach for a while? But you don't see any evidence of that taking place in this chapter. It says that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were totally convinced. That's the type of conversion that I'm I'm talking about, that I want for myself, that I want for you, is to, for you to be totally convinced about the authenticity of the word of God as found in the gospels and the confirming witness of the Holy Spirit to the point that you can endure anything and not be able to go back on what you know to be true in, in your innermost heart of hearts. That's what happens in this chapter. They, they're persecuted. Saul goes house by house and starts arresting people. Think about it. Middle of the night, Saul knocks on your door, breaks it down, uh, you know, brings in a torch because it doesn't flip on the light switch. Brings in a torch. You see some guy who's a big burly dude uh, and you know it's Saul. He's come to take your wife or your husband. And yet nothing happens to these uh, disciples, these believers that can make them deny the fact that either in the flesh or by a revelation of the Holy Spirit, they've seen Jesus Christ as the resurrected, ascended, glorified King of the universe. And so this is what takes place in this chapter. They begin to go out into Judea and they can't help but witnessing. In this manner, Philip, uh, if you remember from last week, he was another deacon who was ordained at the same time as Stephen, Philip begins to preach the word with boldness. And so Philip goes down past Judea into Samaria and demonstrates both the power of the Spirit in signs and wonders and the power of God. Uh, Over and over again, Paul, the apostle, makes the claim to the Corinthians, I think also to the Galatians, that his ministry towards them was not just in words, but also in demonstrations of power. So Paul didn't just come and expose the Bible, or that is, exposit scripture or go take you through a passage, but he also came doing signs and wonders that were confirming the word about Jesus being the Messiah. And so when Paul goes to the Greeks, he, he demonstrates the Holy Spirit's power. And this should be our striving goal when we study the word and when we're uh, in our prayer life, in our devotional life, in our life of seeking with God, we should give God no rest until he does two things for us, implants within us a knowledge of the word of God that is true, authentic, and defensible, and a deposit of the power of the Holy Spirit, not to abuse as Simon does in this chapter, but rather to demonstrate and to heal so that people would be uh, convinced of the authenticity of the message. So the devils flee before the presence of the Lord and feeble legs are strengthened at the preaching of the name of Jesus. 
And Philip begins to, just like Stephen before him, just like the apostles before, and just like Jesus before the apostles, he begins to do signs and wonders. There's deliverances, there's healings, signs, wonders, unexplainable things. The power of God was shown in Samaria. And this is what, this is the context of which we pick up uh, the conversion of the people of Samaria. You see, before Philip had got, gotten there, um, there was this man named Simon, the sorcerer, um, and Simon was doing magic. Um, now, I don't know, it, how, how many of us, how, how many of you have seen a good magic show in person? Just a few? I, I saw a good magic show one time. When I was in college, we went to Las Vegas, which is a terrible idea. You should never go to that city unless you're a Christian. I don't know if I was at the time. My heart was far from the Lord, but nevertheless, went to Las Vegas. It was my uh, buddy's 21st birthday, and we saw uh, Pendulet and uh, Teller, I don't know, Penn and Teller. We saw Penn and Teller. Now, let me tell you, uh, magicians have an, a very interesting skill, but the way in which they use that skill can be good or bad. You could be a Christian uh, sleight-of-hand artist and use it at parties and help explain to people that they shouldn't just believe everything they see, but they should test it to see if it conforms with the Word of God. But this guy, Simon, just like when I saw Penn and Teller, they were doing some pretty impressive stuff that I couldn't explain how it was done. But where Penn and Teller don't go is they don't allow people to worship them as the great power of God, which was uh, in the Old Testament, a messianic title. That is, Simon the sorcerer was not just doing sleight of hand, but you can infer that he really was doing works of power by the devil, not by God. And those works of the devil uh, are evidenced by the fact that he was allowing people to worship him and to be amazed at him. That's, that's, that's a type of worship is being amazed and being convinced. It literally says that the Samaritans were following him around. You think about Jesus' call to the disciples, follow me. So the Samaritans are under this delusion that Simon the sorcerer has over them because he's doing these great and unexplainable things. But it says in this passage that they repent at the preaching of God's word. Um, it says in verse 11, and they paid attention to him, that is Simon, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So this was a campaign of this guy. He wasn't just setting up shop to be an entertainer. He was attempting to hold sway over the Samaritans. And then the connecting verse that describes their transition, uh, in other books, Paul talks about, I think it's... Um, Second Thessalonians, he talks about conversion as being turning away from idols to serve the living and true God. Again, turning away to serve, right? This is what happens. It says they were paying attention, but when they believed Philip, they were baptized, both men and women. This is the Bible's way of saying that these Samaritans had repented, they'd been pierced to the core by the word of God, they understood what was going on, that Jesus was the true son of God, that Simon was just a sorcerer, and they begin to believe, and so are baptized. So, 
that begins us to uh, that that takes us to our third thing that we're going to look at today. So not only did we see Philip's example, just like Stephen's and the apostles and Christ before them, we also see that what the apostles do when they come down has great importance for how we should think about and and the value that we place on witnessing. That is, um, I'd say if if we had to name the weakest point of this church, it would probably be evangelism at this point. That's why we're going through so much trouble laying the groundwork for you to be able to provide a defense to any visitor or person you meet at, at one of these initiatives that we're going to have. Um, you, you need to be able to do this. God can work through you. And, and this portion of Acts 8 provides us with uh, a resource to value and to treasure the glory of evangelism. That is, what it is, what privilege we have in partnering with God. So it's frankly amazing what this passage passage tells us about uh, about how God works through historical narratives in the scriptures and co-labors with humanity in bringing about the redemptive history. Um, pay attention because this is they're subtle but they're really there. Acts eight fourteen through seventeen. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, this is pure narrative. There's time, there's different places, there's a flow of moments. So, with that context, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So this portion of the account tells us two specific things about what it is to partner with God. It tells us first that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a unique and distinct experience from hearing the word of God with faith. We saw that earlier when Jesus explained to the the disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There's going to be a baptism, but it's not the baptism of water. And then in this chapter, that, that doctrine is further solidified. Uh, And then it also shows us that our faithful action in witnessing and sharing the gospel is God's action. Now, I'm not saying that you're God. Hear me out. I'm not saying that you going uh, makes you God or anything like that. I'm saying that when you go, God is on the move. First, it's totally plainly uh, plainly seen in the text that there is a passage of days between when the Samaritans had heard the gospel and when they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It says, in uh, if we go back to it, now when the apostles at Jerusalem, so remember Jerusalem's here and Samaria's here, it's around Jerusalem, It's it takes at least a day or maybe a day and a half if you're slow to get from wherever they were in the region of Samaria to Jerusalem. So, the, the Samaritans had heard the gospel, they had been baptized in water, and then they didn't have Twitter, so uh, they had to send a messenger, or someone happened to go from Samaria to Jerusalem. Maybe they didn't even send a messenger right away, but that they were baptized in water for the remission of sins, the identification that they were leaving just the Samaritan way of life and entering the life of the church, and then it says that word had arrived at Jerusalem. And when the word had arrived at Jerusalem, they send Peter and John. Why do they send them? 
in verse uh, 16. It says, uh, verse 15 and 16, Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for what reason? We, I thought they had already heard the word of God and been baptized. After word gets to Jerusalem, then someone from Jerusalem, Peter and John, go to Samaria and they go to pray. For what reason? Verse 16 says, For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you are going to be able to make disciples and to pray for them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about Christian maturity, able to be a fisher of men, discipling other people. You have to be able to understand that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second experience that is part of the life of every believer. It doesn't say that some Samaritans who wished to be more mature had sent a letter to Peter and John asking them if they were mature enough yet to receive the Holy Spirit. It says that Peter and John were sent by the other apostles at Jerusalem because they had heard that the gospel had come, but only partially. They knew that they had been baptized, but then somehow they found out, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit or, oh, now that the word has taken fruit, we need to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the first thing is clearly plain in, in the account. It's There are a number of days between when the Samaritans heard the gospel and received the Holy Spirit. Even though they believed they were only baptized in water, as it says earlier in the passage that they had turned away from uh, following Simon, but then when Philip had came, they were baptized. Uh, they had only been baptized in water and not yet in the Holy Spirit. So, um, then the second portion that this thing, so first, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a secondary experience, and then the second thing it shows us in laboring with God is that God's action in uh, unfolding redemptive history is done partnering with his church. That is, when his people go and serve and move, the Bible says that's God's movement. If you notice in verse 16, the reasoning why Peter and John are sent is because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen. Literally, it says, for he had not yet fallen on them. Now, when you think about falling stuff, uh, you and I, we don't choose to fall. Uh, when, you know, if you step off a ledge, you don't choose to do the action of falling because gravity is much stronger than you are. But the Holy Spirit is a person and he is God and he had chosen not yet to fall. It's not like the Holy Spirit just kind of fell out of heaven. It's more as if the Holy Spirit descends down out of heaven to clothe the church with power. And the Holy Spirit is God and a person, not an it or a thing. This isn't an apple falling out of a tree. This isn't a person falling out of a building. This is a, a person, the Holy Spirit, God himself, who had not yet taken actions because he was waiting for his people to partner with him. He had yet, not yet fallen because the apostles had not yet prayed. And this tells us an amazing thing. There is a profound and precious truth about the honor and privilege it is to work with the God of the universe in bringing the message of reconciliation to the world around us. And it's plain in scripture. It's a simple cause and effect way of speaking in verse 17. 
I'm going to go to it just so you see it, not even in my paraphrase. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit took the decision to come to Samaria because the apostles prayed and laid their hands on these new baptized only in water believers. That is amazing. And that it should tell us about uh, why it is that we're trying to go and share the gospel. It's not just that these people need saved. It's not just that this community around us is disintegrating in their families. If we were doing it for that reason alone, it would be pointless. It's not just that they escape the wrath of God. Uh, it's not just that they live a better life now. It's also for the glory of giving God what he deserves. That is, Jesus paid an extreme sacrifice. The totality of his life was spent in making it possible for people to come to God by faith. And Paul says that to, to the Corinthians that they shouldn't live ignorantly and they shouldn't live as if they're their own person any longer, for they had been purchased by Christ. That is the glory and value of sharing the gospel. You are, you are giving to Jesus in a small way uh, a, a repayment, if you will. Not that we could ever repay. But Jesus, it says that he uh, despised the shame, but for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus considered it joy to both do the Father's will and to redeem man. God loves his people, and there are people in this neighborhood who he's calling and he will not get them if we do not move, if we don't go out and, and preach the gospel. Now, I'm a five-point Calvinist. If you even know what that means, that's great for you. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but it is hard to re, uh, make the sovereignty of God doctrine in, in a very solidified, like God only does his exact will all the time. That it's very hard to reconcile that with the scripture at all times. And you can talk about his perfect will or his, uh, you know, moral will, and you can come up with words and phrases, but it's plain to see if the apostles had not gone to Samaria, they wouldn't have yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, reconcile it on your own. It's not my job to defend Calvinism. It's my job to, to preach the scriptures and to build you up to understand what they say. So, the Holy Spirit comes because the apostles go down. This should cause us to value and to put effort into our attempts to get better at witnessing. Um, <clears throat> and then finally, at the end of this passage, we begin to see the fulfillment in a, in a small way, in a, in a representative way, of this idea that the disciples, the apostles that were waiting in Jerusalem would be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Uh, Philip goes down and, and is told by uh, an angel to uh, go down. But this account with Philip tells us something. You know, we've already heard the reading. But, but what it tells us is that the New Testament is filled with examples of the apostles preaching from the Old Testament and making inferences and drawing clear, explicit conclusions that, that Christ is the point of particular passages, even though those particular passages do not in and of themselves say this is a messianic prophecy or this is a foretelling of Jesus. Over and over again, it will be your job to preach the gospel 
from the Old Testament where it does not explicitly say, and this is referring to Christ, or this is referring to the Messiah who uh, must come. It, it is going to be your, your job to be able to make uh, inferences and to make clear uh, biblical proofs of why Jesus is in the Old Testament. That was the reason we went through the Christ in the Old Testament series, because if you can't do that, you've got a Bible that is uh, one third of what it could be. And it's actually the case that you, you have to pretty much throw away most of the history in the scriptures if you make a rule that says you can't find Christ in the Old Testament. And effectively, we do that when we primarily in the church focus both in our reading and in our witnessing in using just New Testament scriptures. If you look at most evangelistic materials today put out by uh, either evangelicals or Protestants, whatever you want to call them, most of them contain only references from the New Testament. And they don't have any sort of, maybe there's a little bit of Genesis 1 or Noah or Babel, if you're lucky, but there's nothing like Lamentations or, uh, you know, Hosea. Uh, But it is the case that you can find Christ in every page. So, uh, This is the justification for and inspiration of our search for Christ in the Old Testament, not just the series, but in the way that we read and the way that we think about the Bible. That's the reason we do it that way is because it's the clear pattern of the New Testament and the apostles. So after the fullness of the gospel, both word and power through Philip came to Samaria. Philip receives a message from an angel to go down to Gaza. Um, If you remember, if you've You've heard the last few years, Gaza Strip. You know, this is a place that's south of Israel. It's just on the border between Israel and Egypt. Um, Or it was, and then there, anyway. So Philip receives this message from an angel, and then the Holy Spirit himself speaks to Philip and says that he's supposed to go and join this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch is someone who um, can't, actually father any children. Uh, it's, a, it's a man who has uh, been either voluntarily, I don't think anyone would volunteer for it, or involuntarily subjected to a process of the removal of the male anatomy uh, in such a way that they would not be any threat to be an attendant to the queen or a princess. Many cultures did this. In fact, um, it's actually the case that Daniel and his buddies, uh, you know, they probably or or definitely had to go through this themselves. And um, it is a beautiful thing what God does for this Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, This Ethiopian eunuch is a Yahweh worshiper. That is, he was in Jerusalem. We saw how that happened in Peter or in Acts 2 with Peter and the apostles at Pentecost. There were people from every nation in Jerusalem who were worshiping. This was a common practice in the uh, Roman world at that time. Judaism had become popular. People were beginning to see at least an element of the truth in the Hebrew uh, faith and religion. And so this eunuch is a Yahweh worshiper. He was in Jerusalem worshiping. And he was either returning or going, but um, it says that Philip was told to go join his chariot. So the Ethiopian eunuch is, he's kind of taking a break uh, on his ride back to Ethiopia from worshiping in Jerusalem. And uh, Philip goes up to him and he begins to explain the scriptures. 
Now, remember, Philip had been anointed by the apostles. He was filled with, as Paul says, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That is, the Holy Spirit who comes to make sense of the scriptures. Philip asks him a question if he understands what he's reading, but the eunuch doesn't. He says, how could I unless someone explained it to me? Now, this should be like warning lights in your search today for what is the purpose of me becoming a better evangelist. When people read the Bible, they don't understand it on their own. I, I hate to tell you this, but it's a very sad, sad thing when you see Christians focus only on this idea of put a billboard up with a verse or put, put Bibles in people's hands. Uh, if you don't have the light, you can't find the light if you're blind. Yes, God can, can through his spirit, work with an individual or two who he chooses to reveal to them what his word says upon them just reading the word. But as we've seen, there are many things that we uh, examine that are plainly there in scripture that we had never seen. And they're important and meaningful things. And without Philip explaining to the eunuch what this passage is, the eunuch wouldn't have seen Christ. The eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. Probably, if you, if you got handed Isaiah 53, it's like a slam dunk kind of passage. It's probably one of the easiest passages in the Old Testament to preach Christ from. So Philip admittedly has uh, an easier job than if he was reading in numbers or something, you know. But, but needless to say, Philip had to be convinced that this passage was ta- talking about Christ to show the eunuch any sort of light. So the eunuch doesn't understand. He's not just, he didn't find Gideon's Bible in, in, the, in the hotel and come to know the Lord. He, he was confused. He didn't see Christ. He didn't know to look for Christ. And so Philip comes and gives him some revelation. The eunuch, who is not able to be a father in the natural, then takes the gospel back to Ethiopia and becomes uh if you will, a, a precursor, literally the father of the Ethiopian church, probably. Although we only rely on, on Christian history and tradition, but the eunuch goes back to Ethiopia and begins to take the gospel with him there. And in this way, disciples are made. It says the eunuch was baptized. He, he became a disciple. He goes down to Ethiopia and, and takes the word with him. And then at the end of the passage, it then says, at the end of this chapter, it says that the disciples go anywhere. But it begins the fulfillment of what Jesus had prophesied in both the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and the other half in Acts 1, 4 through 5 and verse 8, that they would be his witnesses. They would represent Christ in Jerusalem and then Judea and then to the utmost parts of the earth. That is this concentric circle expansion. The gospel is going forth. And this is what we attempt to do in our day and in our time. It is not enough that the gospel has been preached in all the world uh, in a representative way. In this way, it was preached. And the, the New Testament actually says at one point, the gospel which has been preached in the, to the ends of the earth, uh, that as an already having taken place thing, that's a representative way in which the gospel had reached to the ends of the earth. The gospel didn't reach to uh, America by the end of Acts, you know. Um, 
And so it's our, it's our job today as Christians. It's our role. It's our goal to take the gospel where it hasn't been taken. And that doesn't mean we have to go on to the Unreached People Group website and find a people group and learn their language and start translating. There are people on this street who have never heard an authentic, powerful, explicit witness of who Jesus Christ is as both Lord and Savior, both the Messiah and Emmanuel. And they won't hear it unless you go. And so the glory that we see, that it is It is God's way of partnering with his people to act when they act should cause us to value and to treasure, to begin to build an appreciation for why we should care about witnessing, why we should train ourselves to be ready to witness, why we should train ourselves to be reading the scripture in such a way that we notice it when Jesus says, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then see that unfold through the entire book of Acts. That's the kind of reading of the Bible that I want for you. That's the kind of the reading of the Bible that I want for me, too. But that's the way in which you become equipped to share the gospel with people. It's hearing anointed teaching, reading the scriptures, praying, meditating, and developing a value for being God's instrument to bring life to a dead world. That's why we're, that's why we're doing this in the next few months. So with that, let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give us eyes to see your word, to see the beautiful things that are written in the true historical narratives. They're not stories. They're not fables. They're writings by faithful people being anointed by your Holy Spirit. Those stories are not just made up. They are true historic narratives. They've taken place. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to all of the things that were deficient in this area of evangelism. We pray that you would pierce us to the core with a burden for the lost, that you would forgive us, Lord, of our callous hearts that have become complacent in knowing you for ourselves, yet we don't mourn over our brothers in the world who have not yet seen you. Those, those people that you wish to be children of God that we haven't met yet or we haven't spoken to. Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness that comes with authentic understanding of the scripture and a true spiritual experience like Paul had in the next few chapters where he sees you and you convince him that he's per- not just persecuting the church, but he's persecuting Christ by persecuting the church. God, we ask you that you would give us authentic experiences of seeing your son in the scripture and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be convinced to the core that no matter what type of persecution may come, we will remain faithful to your word, for we cannot deny what we've seen and heard. God, we ask you to open our eyes to the beauty of your word. Fill us with the Holy Spirit once again. Give us eyes to see the beauty of your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.